today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This could be difficult because we're talking about uh, long-term care facilities. This is uh, these are the facilities, of course, that house our, our parents in some cases, our loved ones, family members, friends, and uh, they were tremendously and adversely affected by the COVID-19 first wave. And we heard some horrific stories about isolation, depression, anxiety, uh, and on and on it goes. And, and of course, well, the living conditions in and of themselves, uh, which, by the way, pre-existed the COVID virus and the pandemic. But uh, like so many other things, uh, COVID maybe didn't create these these crises, but it certainly did exacerbate them. And uh, there are inquiries that are going on right now. There's a, a, an independent inquiry uh, that's happening right now that's hearing some of these stories. And uh, it's it's saddening to hear, uh, but we have to be realistic and understand that uh, this is what happened. And uh, the concern here uh, with this commission that's uh, being uh, led by former Superior Court Justice uh, Frank Morocco uh, is that are we going to repeat the same mistakes again? I mean, because we're told we're heading into the second wave of COVID. What has been done, if anything, to try to improve the situation in long-term care facilities? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Janie Meadis, who is a barrister and solicitor, institutional advocate for the Advocacy Center, Advocacy Center I'm sorry, for the elderly. Uh, Jane, really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I, I've had uh, numerous guests on talking about this over the last little while, uh, even before COVID, a number including the Premier that have talked about it during COVID, all of them vowing that, look, we've got to do something about it. This is deplorable, what's going on. Uh, what's been done? What is being done right now to try to improve that circumstance? Well, that's a very good question, and I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. Um, you know, we had the, you know, the iron ring that the Premier said he was putting around in in the spring when we had very high numbers of COVID outbreaks in in long term care, um, and then you know uh, the 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 virus left the homes it seemed, and we sort of had a summer where I think we we should have seen the government putting in more plants and things, and I don't think that we've seen that happen, and so now we're going into obviously a second wave. We have a lot of deaths um, in Ottawa already, um, and I'm not sure what has been done. Um, to really resolve the root problems in the homes uh, that caused the uh, virus to be so devastating in these homes. Here's the thing that, that I find frustrating, and, and you've been doing a lot more work on this than most people on this, so it must be doubly frustrating for you. Uh, you know, the Premier's promised an inquiry, and how's that going so far? The meeting behind closed doors, which is not really what I think people wanted to see. And then you've got the Justice's inquiry that's going on right now. Uh, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time talking about what the problems are, do we, Jane? We pretty much know what they are. Well, we know what they are, but I think that, you know, I think there is information that could be gleaned. I'm not sure how um, the different uh, commissions and different um, reviews that are going on are going to get to that. Certainly, um, Mr. Justice Morocco's commission on, on COVID-19 um, they do put the transcripts out, and I've you know have reviewed some of them, not all of them, but you know um, you know I read the ministries, some of them you know the inspection um, uh, units uh, transcript, and and I'm quite disappointed. Um, it you know there's not a lot in there that really gives me confidence that they've sort of ramped up and they have a plan in place to ensure that homes are going to be safe the second go around. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, the ministry does have an oversight responsibility here. And by the way, we're talking about private and public uh, enterprises here. Uh, but, you know, pre-pandemic, uh, the year before the pandemic, well, there were only about six or seven inspections in the whole mm -hmm. province, uh, which bothers me. And, I mean, that spoke to me about the, the lack of, uh, of dedication. They think that the government heads toward these. Uh, I thought 
uh, the the uh, moment that might have changed an awful lot of this thing, and it was actually two days before I had the premier on the show back in the springtime, where he went to visit his mother-in-law in one of these facilities. And, of course, he wasn't allowed in, but, I mean, you know, it's one of those mm-hmm. frustrating situations where he said, well, this is terrible, this is deplorable. And he got, I think, a first-hand view as to what's going on. And I thought, well, and he, he vowed on our show. He says, we're going to get this fixed. We're going to do something about it. Uh, like everything in government, though, it seems to be moving at glacial speed, if it's moving at all. Yeah, and I mean, that that issue around the inspections is a problem because um, one of the things that I learned in reading the transcript is that, you know, the issue of infection control had not sort of hit their top 10 in the last year or so. And the reason for that, so so when they do inspections, you know, there's different protocols they look at, you know, they Mm -hmm. can look at food, they can look at infection control, they can look at safety, all different things. Um, but the problem is, is because they're not doing those overall inspections, and those are the ones that they only did eight or nine of in, in the previous year, they're only doing inspections on things that have happened. So either, you know, uh, replying to a complaint, so something happened and someone's complaining, or, a, um, or replying to a, a critical incident where a home has reported something that's a mandatory report. So something has happened and they report. So they're only doing those reactive inspections. Those reactive inspections very rarely look at something like infection control because that's not something people complain about. It's not something that's necessarily going to be reported unless there's a huge um, outbreak. And so the fact that they're saying, well, we didn't have any problems with infection control the year before, it's because they didn't look. And if they don't look, they're not going to be able to determine whether these homes are meeting infection control protocols if they have the pandemic you know, protocols in place because they're not asking those questions on an abuse or neglect case or you know, complaint about the food. Which is bad enough. I mean, and, and you're right. I mean, we've had some examples of that uh, in, in just about every jurisdiction, of course, about abuse of, of you know, mm-hmm. of, 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 of staff, too, not just of residents. I mean, it's been a, a problem and an ongoing problem for quite some time, uh, which raises the issue of the number of staff that are allowed and, and are being put on uh, different shifts. And, and that hasn't really been addressed yet either. But once you get into something like this, and we saw this happen in front of our eyes, I guess, over the last few months now, Jane, is... <laughs> These facilities are almost like a petri dish for the spread of the infection. They're overcrowded, uh, too many residents in some rooms, uh, poor ventilation systems. Uh, you have staff that are working part-time at one facility and over to another, so and they could be carriers. I mean, it was just a, a toxic mix of everything here uh, that, that really put everybody involved in this, res- residents and staff, of course, in a very precarious position. And it hasn't changed that much. Uh, you still have, you know, facilities. They have been changing some from some of the four bedrooms have been slowly changing into two bedrooms, but that's certainly not across the board. Um, we have uh, a problem with staffing, as you pointed out. Um, you know, I mean, one of the reasons that there's uh, a fair amount of, um, you know, I, I don't like to call it abuse, but, you know, uh, staff um, being, you know, assaulted by residents um, is often because they don't have the time to take the proper care. So, if you are a person who has dementia and someone just comes up and starts ripping your clothes off, you're going to fight them. There is a process that has to take place. They don't have the time for that. Um, they haven't put in more that many, you know, they haven't put more staff. In fact, they have left staff now in many places. They can't get replacement staff. So even though, for example, they've stopped um, staff from being able to work full-time or part-time at a whole bunch of different homes. So you have to had to choose a home during pandemic and that's it. And you can't work in multiple homes. Mm-hmm. Because they don't have enough staffing, they're relying upon agencies. And those agency staff can go into any homes. 
So they could be in one home today, one home tomorrow, one home the next day. And again, we're back to the same problem. And, and by the way, the violence issue, you're absolutely right. And there are a number of different issues, and that can come down to medication. And again, it's a staffing issue as well. I, I got to tell you, and of course, I, I, I'm not doing scientific studies, but just anecdotally, when we yeah. do segments of it and we talk to families of, of uh, some of the residents, by and large, Jane, they seem to be very complimentary of the staff. They just say, you know what, there's not enough of them, and they don't have enough time to spend with my mom or my dad, because uh, the buzz is going off all the time, and they're, they're down the hall. You don't have the time to do that and to build a relationship and to actually get to know somebody and to listen to them. And, and I guess that really feeds into this feeling of isolation that many of the residents are feeling. Absolutely. And especially during COVID when they were, you know, basically not allowed to have anyone in um, to see them. And there wasn't enough staff and they were very busy. And now they're coming in with, you know, masks and all this on. Um, it, it's been devastating. And, it, you know, that was one of the things, one of the transcripts that I really urge people to read is the Ontario Association of Residents Council transcript, which you can read on the commission website, where people talked about feeling like those dogs in the cages that you see on, you mm -hmm. know, when they're talking about come rescue these dogs um, because they're in such poor condition. That's what they feel like in long-term care right now. I mean, I know I don't mean to be trite, but it's like put yourself in their position for just a second. Uh, you know, you're you're frail and elderly in some situations like this. I mean, there's a, usually a reason why you're there in the first place. You're looking for family support. It's not allowed. Uh, at least it wasn't back in those days. Uh, you're worried about the virus. Uh, you know, am I going to catch it? Am I going to be next? Because you see some of your other fellow residents that are starting to get this. You can't reach out to anybody. Uh, staff are too busy to spend the time that they w would like to spend with each one of the residents. S uh, family aren't allowed in there. Friends aren't allowed into a situation like this. Uh, but, you know, we've got a major problem with depression, isolation, uh, and, and, and paranoia in some cases. That, you know, what's going to happen to me now? I mean, uh, are, are those even being addressed here? With, you know, because th those are the human elements to what's going on here. Well, the one thing that they have done is they're allowed in what they call essential caregivers, which means that every resident can choose two people. Um, if they're not mentally competent, their substitute will choose two people who can go in. Um, and they can provide a variety of different um, uh, care. So some people will go in and feed their parents. Some people will go in and do more than that. Other Or family member. Um, they can hire a private caregiver. And they can go in and just give more emotional support. The problem is, is that the homes have been allowed to um, deviate from what the government policy is on, on these. And so even though the government and uh, uh, um, uh, the premier last week said, you know, oh, you know, everybody should have these two people and they can go in and it's just going to be a great thing. That is not as what is happening on the ground. And many people are being turned away or being limited um, in contravention of the policies. And so far, we haven't seen any movement in the government to fix that. What about the facilities themselves? And I know that's a much bigger problem and a much more expensive problem, but there are some facilities that are older, uh, outdated, uh, outdated HVAC systems. Uh, the design of them, as you say, where they were designed for uh, many times for, for four residents in one room. Uh, and we know that's not really the best way to do things like that. Uh, you can't tell an owner to knock the building down and build a brand new one. Uh, but there are other ways around this, whether it's, uh, you know, you know, some sort of subsidies or something to help to, to do upgrades to buildings like that. Are we at that stage of having that part of the discussion yet? We've been doing this since 2009. Um, the homes, um, though they've been trying to renovate all of those homes in Ontario or rebuild them. There is a subsidy program. They've uh, sweetened the pot every uh, once in a while because they're not getting a lot of bite from the homes. Um, the homes want the province to pay for everything. Um, 
And, you know, they haven't been doing it. And I believe there was something like 36,000 beds in the province that were supposed to be rebuilt. That was, the soon, that was the original number. Those older homes actually only have licenses till 2025. And if they're not rebuilt, there's, you know, really, they shouldn't have those licenses uh, renewed. But they know they've got the ministry over a barrel because if you don't renew them, where are those people going to live? Yeah. Um, and this is the problem is that this has been allowed to happen. And so not only are they old and everything, some of those facilities don't even have fire um, sprinkler systems because they were told, well, there's no point in installing a sprinkler system right now if you're going to have to, you know, pull a building down in a, in a year or so. Um, so we have homes out there that don't have sprinkler systems. They're terribly old. And it, there's been absolutely no movement, no planning in the government as to how to get them done. They just say, you know, come and give us your plan. But that that's not clearly not working, and they have to work better. I've had some discussions with uh, some folks at CARP, too, the Canadian Association of Retired People. I know who have been doing a great deal of advocacy work on this as well. Uh, and, and they made the distinction each time I've talked to them uh, that uh, this is not a private versus public thing. I know there are some voices that are saying, well, you know, this this should not be privately run. And, and there's an argument to be made for that, which I don't think we want to get into this morning right now. But uh, when you come to culpability and some of the problems that are going on, it, it's happening in both private and public. That's correct. Um, I think the difference is, is that uh, I think there's a feeling that, you know, in, in the not-for-profit sector, at least they're putting all their money in to trying to resolve some of these issues and into, you know, in, they put the money back into the home. Yeah. Whereas, you know, there's a ch- big chunk of money coming out and these homes are still in pretty bad shape. And, you know, should we be allowing companies to take money out when their homes are in such bad shape? And I think that's where some of the frustration lies. And that's why we see a lot of the uh, for-profit homes being at sort of at the bottom of the level, because, you know, we have, you know, 30,000 people on waiting lists in Ontario at the beginning of the uh of the pandemic and so there's no impetus for them to fix the places up frankly because they can always fill their beds so you know they don't need to spend the money they can always fill their beds well we've had some horrific stories in the hamilton area about that and i know you're aware of them and it's 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 frustrating uh, when you see people that are just kind of cavalierly saying you know what are you going to do about it because they know that they've got the government over a barrel uh, because of the shortage of beds that we have in the first place in situations like this, where do you go from here? Where, I mean, you know, the, this inquiry is, is, is again gathering information. A uh, number of advocacy groups like yourselves have, have been working on this for the longest time. Uh, do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? Well, we have to get the government to really put out a plan, and I, I still feel like that they're just sort of hitting fires there you know, saying some of the right things, but I don't see some follow through. I think there really has to be a change in the way the whole process works. I think they have to really put in a plan as to how are we going to fix it. Um, you know, there's a lot of studies. There was a really good study out of, of York University, the long term care that they could, you know, take from. Um, so it's not, again, they're being very reactive and we have to be very proactive and change our long term care system so that it meets the needs um, of everyone who lives there. I hope the governments understand the, the numbers game here, um, because this problem's not going to go away. Uh, as we know, uh, you know, the, the boomers are starting to move into these facilities. I mean, that's, uh, you know, there's there's this inverted pyramid situation again, where there's going to be more reliance on facilities like this. So it, it would behoove them to try to do something about it now and to think some, you know, down the road a little bit and understand that this there's going to be a great deal more pressure on facilities like this in the coming years. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, to, you know, to recognize that one of the interesting statistics about the boomers is that they're not in as good shape as their older 
um, cohort that's in there right now. So not only is it a larger number of people, but they're not even as they they seem to have more comorbidity. So you know we're going to even get a bigger um, push, I think, in the future. Um, and really, what's happening is it's you know it's a lot of this is going to the retirement home sector, which is private pay, um, and so the government doesn't have to worry about it. And I think there's been a real reliance on that. Is that oh well you know people just go and pay their life savings and go and live in retirement homes, so we don't have to worry about it. Uh, these are many of them long-term solutions that, as we say, are going to take some time for government to actually implement. In the short term, Jane, how concerned are you about this second wave and the impact it might have on these facilities? I'm very concerned. I don't think that there's been enough change. Um, you know, hopefully we'll have more PPE. But again, I think the issue goes down to a lot of staffing, a lot of management issues. Um, we need to get more staff into those long-term care homes. And the problem is, is that they don't exist. And so when the government brings out these programs and says, well, we're going to pay more, or we're going to give, you know, extra money, um, it's just not enough to get people into those homes. And that is the biggest problem that we have right now is we don't have enough people to work in those homes to provide the level of care that's required. Um, it's not, you know, they, it's not even just a matter of saying, hey, like, just, just, you know, hire everybody. We've pretty much done that. And so home care is suffering. Long-term care is suffering. Um, and, you know, people don't want to go in and work in a place where they think they may get a, a, the virus and die. So, And inspections would be a good idea, too. As you say, not, not based on requests, but, mm-hmm. I mean, for heaven's sakes, we inspect restaurants on a regular basis. Uh, and, you know, and, and for a good reason. That's our public health. But these are human beings we're dealing with here, too. I mean, there, there has to be oversight. Yeah, and I think the oversight is hugely lacking. Um, and I'm still unclear as to what happened during COVID with respect to you know, inspections, it sounded like at the beginning, they certainly weren't going in, um, certainly not doing full inspections. I'm not even sure how much inspections they're doing on actual pandemics and the deaths within those homes, um, which they should be inspecting on, um, looking at the homes and saying, like, what did you do? And and how did things go wrong? I mean, that is their job. And, and I'm not even convinced they're doing that at the moment. Jane, we're just about out of time now. Thank you so much for this, and thank you for the great work that you're doing to try to move the yardsticks ahead on this. I'd like to stay in touch with you and see just what's going to be happening down the road. Absolutely, anytime. Thanks so much. Jane Mead is, of course, barrister and solicitor with the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.